I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Today's episode is brought to you by PodPage. PodPage is the best service out there for easily and quickly creating your own podcast website. In fact, divingdeepedu.com was created using PodPage. It is super easy to use with nice customization and helpful features. Go to podpage.com to get started with a podcast website today. Use code DIVINGDEEP, all lowercase, to get your first month free or 50% off a premium membership. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments, those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Oliver Caviglioli. Oliver was a former special school head teacher and is now an information designer who focuses on creating visual clarity around teaching ideas and processes. Oliver has displayed this visual clarity through books, such as Dual Coding with Teachers and Teaching walkthroughs. Check out his work at alicav.com. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Just uh, completed a COVID test, <laughs> which I hope will be, will be um, either a show, positive or negative. Negative. <laughs> negative. <laughs> but yeah, I, I hope that it uh, it comes out okay for you. Are you having symptoms or what's going on? Or were you just getting it out of precaution? No, my son, I've got a son with Down syndrome. He comes over the weekend. He came mm -hmm. over, he's about 30, and he, he's been really bad, well, unwell. Mm. We just check ourselves out. I think okay. we'll go Okay, yeah. Oliver, thinking back, uh, your dad was an architect, and he would spend time going things, uh, things of good taste with you. Thinking back to those messages and those discussions that you had, what is a message or lecture that he gave you that remains imprinted upon your mind? Well, not only was he an architect, he was French. So mm. <laughs> he saw a lot of things around him as just what's called kitsch. Do you know the word okay. kitsch? Just no. decorative, overabundant, too many colors, too many bright colors, too many flowers, too many lines, just too many everything, too much of everything. Um, whereas, so he was, so he was an architect at his prime in the, in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Mm. And so that's when, well, it's now really popular again, mid-century modernism. Yes. 
you know, we had the silliness of post-modernism, uh, which is just make everything up as if you're drunk and stick it together. But now, uh, really, it really was. It was always always going to be a short-time joke. Now, you know, it's proportions, harmony, lines. Mm. Uh, it honours the users of things as being mature adults who want to have things be very efficient, but also be um, very aesthetically comfortable and and comforting. Yeah. So you mentioned your dad was French. So so you were sort of getting at and and I'm trying to make these connections here because I, I'm not totally uh, you know fluent with with architecture and style of the 50s and 60s with with French. You were saying he was sort of fighting against uh, some of those pushes in France with the the ornate, you know, colors and, and materials. Is, is that what you were saying? I think that's pretty much, it wasn't to do with France. I think all architects around the world, mm. from those who had the Bauhaus as their as their primary point of inspiration, um, and then later Le Corbusier and other architects, were always fighting the good fight yeah. against decoration. And it wasn't mm. about architecture as well. So he was also a typographer, book illustrator, um, and when you're an architect and designer, everything's a question of design. Everything's a question of balance, proportion, symmetry. So as much care would be into the type of shoe you've got in relation to the trousers, uh, the colour, paintings, paint, uh, anything to do with, with print. Yeah. And they're all the same principles, really. And once you see it... Um, what it means is that now I can go out. Or when I went to London a lot, I'm only half an hour away. I'd go around the shops. I go to big bookshops, whether I was looking at fashion, whether I was looking at furniture, whether I was looking at books and magazines. I could use all of that in my work as an educational mm. designer because I'd be learning all the time because it's all transferable. Off of that, um, how have those lessons, you know, and, and you were you were sort of getting into that, but maybe we can uh, flesh that out a bit more. How have those lessons that that you've learned, you know, through your interaction and growing up with design, how have those those lessons impacted the way that you interact with material today? One of the things my father said, I think architects say this a lot, is that progress comes from complaining. <laughs> so, I heard, so I heard every day a torrent of complaints. <laughs> This child too hard to open. I can't read that print. This <laughs> color. This this tool doesn't work. Or there's instructions. How am I supposed to know what comes next? <laughs> and just this morning, I was looking with my wife at the government instructions to take the COVID test, and a few times we got stuck. You know, it's as if they haven't gone back and lived the experience of being a novice, new. It's all unfamiliar, mm. and you wouldn't know what to do. Mm. so yeah complaints <laughs> <laughs> now you you obviously have a, a love for design and and the organization of materials what drew you and you're and you're using that today but what drew you to enter the education field as opposed to an architecture field um, or a design field you know thinking back in time and then now it's really interesting because you've sort of combine the two but uh, but this question is is getting back in time because you had that decision am i going to go this way or this way what drew you to education firstly as much as i love this world of design the intensity and it was pervasive it was everywhere all the time and it was kind of based on complaints 
it, it just got too much for me in the end. So I went into education instead. But mm. for a couple of years, I, I was in um, I was in mainstream school, um, te- teaching French and phys ed. And then I went to a special school. And then straight away, because um, the children learned so readily with concrete visual communication, yeah. uh, uh, that I was utilizing all the skills skills and knowledge I didn't really recognize that I had. Mm. I was surprised that other people, well, why can't you draw? You mean you can't draw? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like handwriting is like saying you can't, you can't write properly, can't draw. And, and then I was obviously trying it out with children with sometimes with severe learning difficulties. Mm. You know, straight away, you can't kid yourself. Oh, this will do. It can't do. You have to put yourselves in their shoes. Interesting. And also, during that time, um, unlike, I think in, in the States and here in America, for the last five, six, seven years, they've had this incredible focus on evidence-based teaching. When you work in a special school, we live and work side by side with educational psychologists. Hmm. So we had research all the time. And it was, it, was, it was natural to converse about what plans you'd have with the psychologist with regard what papers or, you know, what does research say? Yeah. So you're mixing research with roll your sleeves up really difficult problems in the classroom. Tell me what a special school is. That term isn't that common here in, in the States where, where I'm from. Well, I know in the 70s and 80s, there was a big move to inclusion. Uh, Britain went the same way. And I, I remember reading lots of papers about it in the States. Uh, we... It's not quite the same now, but in the, in the 80s, they split special schools into what they call moderate learning difficulties mm-hmm. and those that would call severe learning difficulties, which included children with autism. Pretty much most of the children who used to be in moderate learning difficulty schools are now found, quite rightly, in mainstream schools. But those with severe learning difficulty, their numbers didn't diminish because the advance of medical science meant there were more survivors from premature births. Mm. And so the, the, their conditions um, were really quite severe, yet their survival rate meant that they had, they, they had to be addressed. Oliver, one of your main focuses these days is dual coding theory. Now, we're going to dive deep into dual coding theory because that's what we do here. We dive deep. Uh, but to get things started off in a concise way, uh, especially for our listeners who this may be new, what is dual coding theory? Okie dokie. <laughs> let's, let's, let's look at coding. Um, the psychologists, they, I mean, I, I joke, they some try and, try and confuse us by using complicated words <laughs> yes. instead of everyday words. So instead of learning, they'll use the word encoding. Okay. So they use the word encoding, meaning new information comes into your mind. And because it makes sense, because it relates to what you already know, you imbue it with meaning. And it kind of has a slot in your mind where it will fit, which is appropriate. They call that encoding. So dual coding is encoding something twice. So imagine you'd never come across or learned French and because French is my first language, I thought we'll start off with some easy vocabulary and I'll teach you the French word for cat. Well, you'd hear me say le chat, you would see the spelling of it and you would see an image. And so all those would be bundled together as one unit of information for cat. So it would be encoded with a word and it would be encoded with an image. 
thus the term dual coding. Yeah. And Professor Paul Kirshner therefore calls it double-barreled learning because you're kind of getting double the power of learning, which means at the other end of the cycle, which is retrieval, remembering, recalling, you, and because it leaves what's called, I mean, it's not real, these are just metaphors, a double memory trace, hmm. which can trigger your, your memory either with the word or the image, or most likely with both. So the retrieval strength is doubled, consistent with the encoding strength. And a Canadian called um, Alan Pivio, who, by the way, uh, in 1948 was Mr. Canada bodybuilder. <laughs> so he was a dual professional. He was a dual professional. I <laughs> anyway, he, he divided this theory in a very early, well, actually late 60s, early 70s, and spent the next four decades testing his theory. So it really is one of the most robust theories in education. And people get quite excited by that. What isn't focused on is that his studies focused on really simple material, hmm. as in Le Chat, the cat. So we weren't going into philosophy. We weren't doing abstract concepts. So, you know, an image of the Parthenon wouldn't help you understand Plato's philosophy. So, yeah. so, so it's simple stuff. So, and there is lots of stuff that students need to learn because you can't do complicated things, which is about connecting it all up, if you haven't got any things to connect. It plays a really useful um, function. Hmm. So I was kind of, you know, and I'm at fault because in the book I wrote Dual Coding with Teachers, you know, we use diagrams or graphic organisers or visual tools yeah. or semantic organisers. They're all kind of different words for the same thing. It always struck me, this has always been called dual coding. It's it, they've even been called visual strategies. Yep. But the thing is, I mean, I've latterly, I've called them word diagrams because you really don't need any pictures in them at all. So how comes they're called a visual strategy when there's no visuals? Mm. And so I got to work on this, and I, I've come up to my satisfaction, and it's some interesting links with other bits of research, I've come up with two stories for dual coding. So dual coding pure, as Alan Pivio did, is my story number one, which is a word and a visual. Okay. And all the benefits and limitations that I've just gone through. Then I wanted to, how could I explain this other notion of diagrams? Yeah. So I realized in my dual coding story number two, which Pivio did talk about, or rather write about, but he didn't research. Other researchers did. And here, the significant difference is the visual, sorry, is the word and the visuospatial. Hmm. So the spatial component. Indeed, the visual component isn't absolutely necessary. It's really advantageous. So there are enough examples I've read in books. And last year, I went to a college, students um, 16 to 21 where I met a chap who taught students with little or no sight. And he created diagrams. I mean, they weren't overly complex. And he put them in this machine called an embossing machine. So every line he drew became raised. And so his students would be presented with these embossed diagrams and with their hand alone 
would access the spatial arrangement of the words, or maybe symbols, you know, or uh, or the Braille system. So now, obviously, it takes a lot more effort and is open to more mistakes than using your eyes. So the visual part is only, only I mean, it's usefully so, but it's the means whereby we, with sighted people, can access the spatial relationship. Mm-hmm. The spatial relationship which creates the meaning. So in a way that a sentence... You know, psychologists call, talk about sentential structures. Sentence. What what transcends from being a horizontal list of words? Because sentences aren't just a list of words. Now, normally you think of list of words vertically. You could say a sentence is just a horizontal list of words. Mm. But it's not. It's the syntax, the grammar pointing out the relationship between words, not just those that are just before, just after, but some words that are quite early on in a sentence, even to previous sentences. So the syntax or the grammar is what makes those words meaningful. Well, in word diagrams, it's the spatial positioning, whether close, part of, before, afterwards, far away, over, above, between all those prepositions we use, and it's that which gives meaning to something. And that then links to a whole lot of other different theories. And this is where it's really interesting. Um, I recently came across, I'm going to come back to that, I recently came across some fascinating research about what makes for successful CPD. And these two researchers didn't just look at educational research. They also looked at social psychology so they, in addition to educational research, they looked at social psychology, nudge theory. They looked at habit formation, because yeah. essentially that's what you want teachers to do when you have professional development, is to mm-hmm. learn some new habits. Yeah. Not completely all of them, but some of them. So when we look at research in different spheres, and when they all point to the same area, that's a really strong clue to its validity. So... Back in the 30s, there was something called Gestalt psychology, where we saw, they looked at the human perception, and we saw that when things are group proximity, when things are close, it's as if they have something in common. They group together. So there's a whole host of other Gestalt principles at work that relate to the spatial arrangement. Hmm. Um, And there's an American psychologist called Barbara Tversky, who, who has uh, working for four decades as well, has in her recent book, Mind in Motion, has come up with this wonderful phrase, we regard ideas as objects. Wow. We regard ideas as objects. So just as in the world, we arrange, I mean, look at your house, like any house. You've got thousands of objects and you place them in particular arrangements, the result of which is something that has meaning, called a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we arrange ideas in the same physical way, it creates meaning. Mm. One more bit of research, well, no, two more bits of research, <laughs> psychologists who looked at our language, and they showed, well, what was I call it? One was a linguist. They showed that we speak in metaphors. So, for example, I normally do this exercise in my course, 
I say, you know, I taught children with special needs. Could I teach them this? And I say, Shakespeare is central in the canon of English literature, whereas Joe Walton, that rather irascible playwright, is somewhat of a peripheral marginal figure. And they say, no, of course you can't. And then before their very eyes, I draw a circle and I say, inside is what we call great English literature. Outside, you might have great French literature or you might have bad English literature, but it's you got the inside and the outside. So that circle is this thing called the canon of English literature. In the middle, because we always say something is central, when something's central, we mean it's important, there's this geezer called Shakespeare. <laughs> and right on the edge, there's this playwright, this 1960s English playwright called, I put O for Autumn. So he's on the edge. So he's, he's edgy. He's on the periphery. He's marginal. Something, some people even would argue he should be outside it because his works are scatological. Filthy. <laughs> so when I do that, I'm then in a position to ask the teachers, because it's quite a provocative question I ask them, do you think it's possible that on some occasions, some may think many occasions, the language we use with which to explain a concept is way more complicated than the concept itself? Hmm. In the example I've shown you, you can depict a concept really simply with a diagram. Yeah. So when we look at our language, we use spatial metaphors all the time. So I'd, I'd say uh, Matthew is front and central in the world of podcasts. <laughs> of course, you're not front and you're not central. It's a metaphor. <laughs> There's no such thing as front. There's no such thing as central. We speak these metaphors constantly. Mm. And so it's as if people are actually describing a diagram with words. But none of the students can see the diagrams. They have to reconfigure all the words and try and get the image in their head. Mm. Now, back in 1987, Larkin and Simon, two psychologists, published a paper, said a picture is, brackets, sometimes worth 10,000 words. And it was based on a bit of research they did that's been replicated multiple times. Mm. Two lots of undergraduates, physics students, clever people. And one of them, they give them, they gave them some, they presented them with problems, um, and the only source of information they had was text. The other group, you know, it was you know randomly selected. They had the same problems, the same questions, and they were presented with text and diagrams. And those who were presented with with the diagram as well as words uh, were significantly quicker, more accurate in arriving at the answers. Hmm. And the reason, the conclusion drawn by the Larkin and Simon was, are you ready for a bit of jargon? Bring it. <laughs> Diagrams, when they're well-constructed, offer computational advantage. They are computationally more efficient than text at drawing out the meaning. So with text, you, you find, and I, again, you know, I trip teachers up because I give them exercises where I, they, I design them, they look really simple and they can't answer the questions. And then I give them the same information in diagrammatic form and the answers are just self-evident. Um, so inference is really difficult with writing, reading. With a diagram, it's, it's in front of your eyes. So I'll finish off by um, a British philosopher, Bertrand Russell. In the 1930s, he wrote a chapter in a book, and his chapter was called Vagueness. 
And he said, when you look at a, a diagram, all the items within the diagram, the elements of the diagram, and their relationship to one another, so as I said before, close, far apart, up, above, below, you know, all those things, mm-hmm. they are immediately and explicitly available to the viewer. There's no guesswork. If something's closer, you don't have to guess whether it's closer. Your eyes tell you it's closer. And like my Shakespeare, is it inside the circle or outside the circle? Is it in the middle or at the edge? It's mm-hmm. obvious. And then he went on, if you want to communicate and explain those relationships with, and I learned a great word there, concatenation. It's a wonderful word. Con is Latin for with. Catena means chain. In other words, a string of words, whether spoken mm. or written, you have to use, and I'm going to use this phrase, compensatingly complex syntax. Mm. So we kind of gone full circle. Things which are inherently simple and explicit become enormously abstract and problematic for a lot of children and students to understand when they are expressed solely in sentences. Hmm. So Richard E. Mayer, who's been researching the field for over four decades, his conclusion is we learn better with words and images than with words alone. And that is for human beings. That's irrespective of what you think you learn better with or what you what you assert and convince you learn better with. You know, obviously I'm avoiding the learning styles for our Joe. Um, yeah. So when you get those different research in, in different fields, you know, cognitive linguistics, and you're getting, um, you know, I could go into neuroscience as well. It's it's a fascinating collaboration of ideas. A quick pause to hear a message from our sponsor. Upper Left Corner is a PNW true crime podcast now streaming on all major podcast platforms. If you get excited when your favorite true crime podcast tells a story about a place that you've been to or the town that you live in, then Upper Left Corner podcast is for you. Each week, I tell you a story of a crime that has taken place in the PNW and give you background about the town the crime occurred in. If you like true crime, check out Upper Left Corner podcast now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. Yeah, Oliver, this is wonderful. And the and the thing that jumps out, there's a lot of things that are very fascinating about what you're sharing. Um, but I wanna I wanna bring up that word collaboration that you just kind of ended with because I love the way that you're collaborating with different fields, um, with different thought processes, even with different decades and times of thinking. You just brought us on a journey, you know, bringing this philosopher with this psychologist and this educational thinker, this designer, and that is wonderful. And that brings depth to what you're trying to help us understand about dual coding theory and why it's so important. And I think it also highlights, you know, your work at the special school, having that constant collaboration with those psychologists and um, and the way that that helped you then. And, and it's helping me now understand what you're explaining and bringing greater depth. So I really appreciate uh, the way that you're doing that and the hard work and the research that you're bringing. Um, I do want to follow up and ask something. So sure. you, you you sort of divided these or, or categorized them into story one and story two. Now, you've been sharing a ton of examples, um, but some people, you know, like myself, are still trying to get our heads around this. Would you be able to give us an example for 
story one, a dual, uh, something that would exemplify dual coded theory for the story one, and then the story two, thinking about spatial. Now you have given us plenty of examples, but I guess I'm just asking for uh, two more, one for story one and one for story two. Sure. Story number one is you're learning French. You have a vocabulary list. You can't speak French without knowing some vocabulary, mm-hmm. <laughs> any language. So there's some interesting thing to do with languages, but the bedrock here is you need to learn a lot of words off by heart. So you would present a list of words to your children, and alongside them, they would have an image. Now, either you provide the image or they look for it and provide it. That's just a, a, a question of approach. Yes. Essentially, you get a word, a word and an image. And then you look at them both and then you test yourself, you check it, and then you look at it again and you check it, and it's the word and the image. That is really, really quite simple. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. Story number two, which, by the way, uh, John Sweller of Cognitive Load fame, he calls it dual mode. Hmm. And uh, Richard E. Mayer, who I just mentioned, he calls it, I think bizarrely, the multimedia learning principle, which apart from being long-winded is yeah. <laughs> multimedia. You know, I'm thinking of um, uh, acetates. I'm thinking of tape recorders. Yeah. means your own. I, so I come up with a more kind of sexy term, duomodo. <laughs> there you go. I come, it's a bit like duolingo, you know, duomodo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that would be, um, take, actually, here's a really good example. Especially, it comes from my my special school. One of the things that I'm finding increasingly fascinating is when research contradicts each other. So, we know with cognitive load and really tiny working memory, children with special needs have a smaller, even more constrained working memory than, than anybody else. So, we mustn't overload them. At the same time, we also know that... If I give an instruction to do a task with three steps for the whole class, but those children who need extra help, the steps are too large. I need to break it down. You know, salami slice it. So they need nine steps. Mm-hmm. So where you might need three steps, that's fine. You know, you know all the bits in between. Someone else in your class needs 12, nine or 12 steps. So I, you know, psychology is called task analysis, salami slicing. I break it into really tiny steps which is really good for them. However, 12 steps overwhelms them. Mm, yeah, <laughs> true. Really real problem. Yeah. Now, if I draw a simple flow chart, one, I've captured time. I can put all the future in, and instead of having 12 steps, I could just have three steps like you've got, but each one, I break it out a bit like a mini mind map into four mm. smaller steps. Mm. So I could present that with everybody. So everybody's got all the details and it's, it's static. One of the things that John Sweller talks about, and it's a really common problem in teaching, is called the transient information effect. And some of your listeners may be experiencing it now. The words we're speaking, particularly me, <laughs> I'm fast, I'm furious, and they all disappear. Well, you are, you are recording it. They all <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's recording. So your working memory gets overloaded. The thing about a diagram is it's in front of your mind and it doesn't disappear. So then I've got these three major steps, left to right, because in the West we, we know time goes from left to right. 
It doesn't really. That's why we have yeah. phrases going forward. Actually, no one's going forward. It's a metaphor. And, then, and so we group the details around the, the three steps. So the student with special needs have got it all handled. They can kind of chart their way through. Yeah. And the more able children like you, you only need the three steps. But those four extra details, they don't give you something else to check yourself against. And anything other... Now, I could write a whole list of instructions. Um, I don't know whether you've ever bought anything where there's just verbal written instructions. Step 7A.2. <laughs> you know, like, oh. Yeah. You end up going right to the beginning. It really complicated. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for the example. I was having a, a, a little bit more difficult time getting my head around uh, the story too, and that that example just sort of solidified it uh, for me. So, so I really appreciate that. You have a book, uh, Dual Coding with Teachers. How can we bring a dual coding theory and integrate it uh, within schools, what have you found to be successful? Well, in the book, I go into there are different ways that you, I'm leafing through it now <laughs> <laughs> because my mind goes. There are different ways that which it can be expressed. These are most of them. One is graphic organizers, mm -hmm. and in America, they tend to be pre-printed boxes that children fill in. So I'm using them in the, kind of the broader sense, which maybe tightly inaccurate, more like a visual tool or semantic organizer. Mm. And there's diagrams where you might draw a profile of, uh, of a rock to show the different types of soil or the inside of a machine, how that works, or a brake system. Then there's sketch notes, which has mm -hmm. been quite enormously popular, particularly in the States over the last uh, perhaps half dozen years at least, with yeah. handwritten um, notes that you would take for yourself, which would be including a doodling, drawing, notes, headlines, highlighting. Infographics, uh, and these vary in quality and sophistication. Sometimes there you see them in newspapers sometimes. It's almost as if all the bits of news they haven't been able to use in a story, they'll just give you a whole bundle of numbers. 20% of that, and it fills up the space, you know, yeah. in really low quality. But on the other hand, presenting visual data presented visually allows human beings to hold in mind and think and analyze in ways that would be impossible without the external visual projection of those numbers. Hmm. Posters, you know, we've always had posters. Yeah. Slides, presentation slides, you know, PowerPoint keynote mm -hmm. and they're all principles of how to make those words documents ne they needn't just all be words displays you know i don't know what you call them in america you, you know you've got a big board a display board and you yep. put some of the things the children have done or some of the things you want them to learn or have in mind drawing itself um, and there's been some recent research to show by Myra Fernandez that it's one of the strongest, if not in some cases, the strongest mnemonic aid to memory. So that's mm. another kind of angle of the dual coding. So in which case you've got, you've got the visual, you've got the verbal, and you've also got the gestural because your body remembers the drawing and how it went so you could redraw it again. Oliver, can let's talk about that for a moment. So, okay, great. Drawing that would be, you know, you you give a a concept to a student, and they would have to illustrate it. So it would almost be, 
you know, like a fusion with an art class? Or can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I want to I want to get rid of the word art. So mm. The top sketch noters in, in business, Don Moyer, uh, uh, Dave Gray, calls it sketching as communication, not sketching as art. So if you were to draw a human being, you draw a little rectangle with a little circle on top and two wiggly lines or curved line for the arms and the legs. And that's all you need to do. Give me a concept that you think uh, drawing would, you know, it's helpful. So you're studying this concept and the student draws this sort of thing. Can you give me an example of that? I'm going to give you an obtuse one. Tversky did this research, which will be, I think will be, illegal now because she videoed people in a booth watching a videotape unbeknownst to them. (laughs) They had to follow because they knew they would be asked questions on it later, Mm. a verbal and and, or written instruction of how a braking system works. Okay. Mm -hmm. 70% of them unknowingly, and they weren't asked to, found they were gesturing, and I'm gesturing now, I'm going, so the pump's here, and it mm-hmm. comes over to the left, and it meets this, then it goes, shoots down to here, then it breaks away into... So they were gesturing what they thought the words represented. Mm. The ones who gestured better than those who didn't. And then she did a subsequent test where she told half of them, you have to sit on your hands. You're not allowed to gesture. And the other says you really can learn more if you gesture you have to gesture and again they compare them and those who gestured did far better than those who didn't gesture Hmm. so i wanted to establish that first before we start talking about drawing and i also want to go with those cognitive linguists who talked about our language that was back in the 80s lakov and johnson they said the metaphors we use are spatial metaphors predominantly when we're dealing with thinking that insight by the linguist became the very birthright, the origins of something called embodied cognition. So a whole field of psychology grew because of this insight into our language. And there we found out that we are constrained by our working memory, and, but we can, we can really hack it. So not at the expense of working memory, but in addition... You can use all the words and thinking and speaking you want. And additionally, you can draw or trace. Hmm. So I I do an activity on my course where we construct a diagram, a word diagram. It's about my home country, Corsica, a French colony. And uh, I talk about it. The the teachers, it works with students, copy exactly my diagram. They then explain the diagram back to each other, elaborating using sentences. And at the same time as they do that, the index finger of the hand that they write with, they make direct physical contact and they trace the shape of the map in perfect coordination with their speaking. Hmm. And then we take the map away from them. They're given a blank sheet of paper and they're asked to redraw the map from memory and they do it like a photocopy because their eyes have seen the map their ears have heard their narrative their mind has exerted cognitive effort to create full sentences as they explain to a partner so there's that element of accountability and significantly Mm -hmm. and i'll go back to john sweller who has verified this the tracing 
has been another source of information capture, not mm. sense of, but in addition to the limitations of working memory. And the results are just consistently remarkable. Mm. And when you do it with children, those who had become disenchanted with school and had created a very strong self-image of them as not being clever or good learners, yeah. in an instant, they have evidence before their very eyes that actually that just wasn't true. The only thing that was true, they hadn't been taught the best tools for their mind. Yeah, this is this is really helpful, and and I and I want to thank you for for sharing that and those examples of of drawing. Because I mean, I just want to share. You know, I've been guilty of you know sort of relegating the idea of tracing or illustrating to either the art sector or sort of an elementary understanding. And I really appreciate you bringing the research forward and uh, and bringing it front and center and helping us understand the idea of physically uh, tracing or physically drawing, physically doing. Um, there's something, there's a process that happens in our brain that's that's really helpful and important. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. Um, warning. This is an invitation to return to progressive education and get the colored pencils and draw what you want to. Yeah. If it isn't yeah. intimately and rigorously tied to an expression of a concept, it's just doodling. Mm. So just want to tie it to the bit of research. Last year, John Sweller, he wrote a paper which is free on the internet, 2019. It was a 20-year review of cognitive load theory. And he updated it. And one of the most significant updates, I think, is the, is the acknowledgement of an inclusion of embodied cognition. And he mentions a bit of research by Chi and her colleagues in which one group were given a problem for which they were given um, a worked example, which is a really strong strategy from cognitive load, which is basically breaking a, 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 a learning strategy into several components so you know what to do. Yeah. So I, I, I teach you how to take a radio apart. I'll show you step one, step two, step three. They don't disappear, so you can just copy what I'm doing. Mm. The other group had the worked example, and I think it was a geometry problem, and in addition, they were instructed to trace the angles of the problems. And as powerful as worked examples are, the group with worked examples and the tracing outperformed the worked examples alone. And that totally convinced Sweller, and it now has a valid place in cognitive load theory, the notion of embodied cognition. Oliver, you grew up, uh, just as a, a little bit of a tangent, you grew up, you mentioned earlier, uh, speaking French in the household. Yes, yes. Now, uh, today, I'm just sort of curious, um, are you speaking French in, in your household? <laughs> no, my wife would smack me. Uh, <laughs> she's English, uh, and I failed to teach my children how to speak French. I'd say that I'm going as red as my book. <laughs> so when, when do you have a chance to sort of speak in your first learned tongue? So rarely. Some of my old friends on Facebook, but otherwise I, I very rarely speak. Yeah, do you miss it? Yeah, because you really do start to... It sounds corny to say you think differently. Um, mm. In some sense, you feel different. You yeah. feel a different person. Oliver, you've interacted with a lot of schools and tons of educators. As you reflect upon those interactions, the many interactions, your, you know, much of your work, 
What's been some of the things that have been most inspiring for you? I think the thing that's most inspiring about teachers, I'm going to, I'm still going to revolve it around a, um, a conceptual idea, mm-hmm. the idea of immediate feedback. When human beings get immediate feedback, they can adapt in the moment to what's needed to be said and done. Mm. And so there's been this myth proposed by people who are against direct teacher instruction that it's just a teacher at the front talking all the time. It's not. The teacher directs the conversation. It all goes through the teacher, but it results in highly interactive classrooms. So my colleague who I'll mention soon, Tom Sherrington, with whom uh, I was engaged in, in a big project, he says the one technique he identifies in his observations, which teachers are convinced they do very well, and they convince they do it frequently, is the one technique that Tom finds teachers on the whole don't do very well, and they don't do sufficiently frequently. Mm. And it's a technique that uh, allows immediate feedback and interaction, which gives more feedback, is called checking for understanding. So constantly asking, prolonging, probing conversations to find out what children are thinking, what their assumptions, why do they think this, and why does why does Sue think Joe thinks that? What you know, so you get you get children to evaluate e- theirs and each other's thinking, um, and then they get used to the idea of projecting, exposing their their thinking and then learning just um accelerates have you seen ways that have been helpful to check for understanding or is it just as simple as asking it really helped to do cold calling you know doug lemos cold calling because if you want if you want tom and i have got together this thing called a clusters where we realize that researchers because they're scientists only want to measure one thing that's right The result is when they write about it, they write about the one technique. And that somehow perverted teachers in talking about one technique, whereas in reality, performers in whatever sphere they engage in use several techniques. So I'm going to put together three techniques together and I'm going to link their uh, configuration by looking at my reasoning. So I'll say if, and I'm going to emphasize the words, if I want my students to think for themselves and make sure they don't leave it to anybody else, then I'll do cold calling so that they know they could potentially be immediately accountable for for telling me what they've been thinking. If I fear that some students may not have enough prior knowledge on their own to make that profitable, then I'll do something like think, pair, share. Okay. Then they they'll be able to double the amount of knowledge they've got. They won't feel as if personally accountable. They'll be part of a little team, and by talking, they'll be rehearsing their answer. Mm-hmm. Then, if I want, if I want to check that they've understood, then I'll use check for understanding, so that we then can build a dialogue that goes merely past who's understood, who hasn't. So I can get past hands up or yes, oh, Matthew, that's great. You've got the answer. Assume the rest of the class have as well. But I need to ask Oliver at the back. Oliver, did you agree with Matthew? Uh, 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 uh. You know, so you're getting this constant conversation that probes, which makes the classroom really exciting. 
Yeah. It's a real thinking classroom. So that's an example where you'd use three techniques really closely aligned based on the, if I, if I want this, then I'll do this. Mm-hmm. So not only is that useful for a teacher in themselves to really test their, their little theory, but it means if you were a master teacher and I was your student, I'd get the outside story by watching you teach, but I'd get the inside story by hearing you explain why you chose to do what you did. Hmm. And when you mix the inside and the outside story, for a teacher, that, that really can propel you to understand more fully and then pick up new habits. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey, everyone. My name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. I really like the way that that you're calling it this sort of conversation that the master teacher is having with the students and interacting with them in different ways. The cold call, the think, pair, share, the dialogue, and all of those things come together to to hopefully help, um, you know, form a better understanding for the students. Oliver, this has been a complete blast. As we get to the end of our conversation, who do you want to give a shout out to? And I mentioned him already. It's Tom Sherrington. He's my, uh, my co-worker now in our walkthrough project where we have applied the, um, the principles of dual coding and the parallel principles of really clear, crisp writing to be able to capture teaching techniques in five steps. Um, mm. And he's been an inspiration to me in the way he has done that and his many other work as well. Oliver, it is time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? I'd like you to look at your talking. When you talk to your outside of school now, so do that as a warm-up, and then when you get in school, notice your explanations, the words you're using as if you were describing something physical. Try, just try as a party game over Christmas, not to use a metaphor, never use the preposition in, on, beside, forward, backwards, on top of, centre of, because I caught you, you said front and centre, Matthew. Yes. <laughs> Try and do it. And you man, I can't do that. The reason which you recognise you use the spatial metaphors mm-hmm. may be an indication, the degree to which the understanding would be better if you also made those spatial metaphors, not just linguistic, but also visual. Oliver, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your unique insight in helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.